0: This morning's reading is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. 127th Psalm deals with work. Now, I don't know how many of you got up this morning and you said to yourself, I sure hope Pastor Keith preaches on work. Um, The Bible talks a lot about it, though, and we'd be wise to hear what it has to say on work. Um, because it might change, by God's grace, your perspective on how you go to work, why you work, your motivation for work, and uh, receive the blessing that the psalmist has to offer. It's not strange either that this would be in the progression of the Psalms of Ascent at 127, because for those who made their way back from the Babylonian exile and now are in the city, there's so much work to do. Remember, I mean, the city's destroyed, the buildings are destroyed, the walls are destroyed, the gates are destroyed, the fields are The fields are destroyed. There's so much work. And so I imagine the initial response would be, really? Let's go back. Let's go back to Babylon where at least we had three meals and a place to stay. Um, But what we see here in the psalm is that a call to work that is wholly and completely dependent upon God. That God's the one who builds. God's the one who guards. He's the one that that, uh, gives us our daily bread. He's the one that builds our families and gives us children. And so there's a, um, a movement here, a radical movement, to work in his work and to strive in his power and his strength, not alone. But what we do as fallen creatures is we take something good like work. In this psalm, we take something good like family and we twist it just enough. We pervert it just enough so it misses its mark. Work is given to glorify God. Children are given to glorify God. But if we try to do it our own, we try to build our own lives, build our own vocation, build our own families, we do it apart from God, then the end will be vanity and destruction. And it will not go as we so desire. So this morning, I'd like to look at the 127th Psalm in three things. And they're simple. They're not, you're not going to walk here going, well, oh, I never thought about it like that. Maybe a couple uh, um, verses will. But they're to be taken. This is wisdom literature. In fact, the, this psalm and the next are attributed to psalm. We don't know if he wrote them. And so it goes into wisdom literature as you would read from Proverbs. And it, kind of, it very much sounds like that. When, when we were reading through it, as Jim was singing, it sounds like wisdom literature. So let's become wise this morning. I mean, let's leave here wiser than we um, we did when we came in. Let's look this morning at work that's perverted. You're saying, well, that's going to sound interesting. Okay. The first worker and laboring in love. Work that goes off its original mark. In In our culture, in the Bible, and throughout human history, we see work taking one of two extremes. And some of you are going to say, I'm in that extreme right now. We see workaholics and sluggards. Those who work too much to bring identity and glory to their lives. And those who don't work at all because they're just flat out lazy. They don't want to work. They want to stay at home and they want to sleep. Look at verses 1 and the latter part of verse 2. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builder labors in vain. And the last line in verse 2, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Now, I I don't have to spend a lot of time on this. Our culture has these two extremes being lived out. We see workaholics in our culture. We know that the 40-hour work week is a bygone day. I don't know anybody that works 40 hours anymore. Most are 50, 60, some 70. And so this is very much something that we're dealing with. And the idea is that we are going to work really hard, and we're going to buy the things that we need to buy, and we're going to make a name for ourselves in such a way that if God helps, that's great. We can use his help, but if he doesn't, we're going to make it anyway. We're going to rise early. We're going to go to bed late. We're going to work on weekends. We're going to work, work, work to bring ourselves identity, to bring ourselves purpose, and some glory. And very early in the stages of human history, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, we saw the workaholic engaging on a grand scale. If you remember when the people gathered in the plain of Shinar, the the first people that were created, and what did they try to do? They got together and what did they do? They said, you know what, let's not use the stone that God made. Let's make bricks that we will bake ourselves that are so strong that we can build ourselves a tower. Where? A tower to the heavens. In fact, this is what it says in Genesis chapter 11. They came together and they said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so they did. They worked ferociously and they started building this tower. But the purpose wasn't to glorify God. It wasn't to serve God. It wasn't to serve people. It was what? said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's bring glory to ourselves. Let's, apart from God, independent of God, strive and work so that we... The people of Babel will be known throughout the world. Now, God lovingly did what? He destroyed the tower. You say, how is that loving? He destroyed the tower. He confused their language and he scattered them over the face of the earth so they would not become wholly independent or try to be independent of their creator. Working, building, guarding, procreating apart from God's power and God's strength. He said, well, you know what? We've evolved as a people. We don't think like that anymore. We know we can't build a tower to heaven. You know, we know we can't build a tower that high. but the 20th century, of all centuries in human history, and the age of technology, I think, have given rebirth to the, the idea of the Tower of Babel. In many ways, because we have, for over 100 years now as a people, I know I grew up like this, with this central teaching that technological advances will move us to a place where not only we can make a name for ourselves independent of God, but we can live lives that we desire to live, that are free of disease and hunger and injustice and things that bring harm and pain, where science and technology become the ultimate and final authority. So when we go to build something, let's say something as simple as a house, we won't rely. We will go to God first, we won't seek God's wisdom first, we won't pray to God first, we'll go to a simple engineer, right? Because you've got to have it engineered, or you're never going to get through the county. If you don't get it through the county, you're not going to get the permit, you don't get the permit, you can't build the house. So that's where we start. Some of you who um, are working ferociously to make a living in order to pay your bills. And you think, you know what, I'm running short each month, therefore I need to do what? I need to work harder. I'll get up earlier. I'll work later. I'll work weekends. I'll forsake God. I'll forsake church. I'll forsake relationships. And so you keep working and working, working, thinking somehow you'll make it out. When the problem is, you're not starting with God first. He's not first. Whether it be in prayer, or in scripture, or wisdom, or study, or just you're relating to him. Where you go to him rather than someone or something else. In our families, when we struggle with families, we go to a family therapist first, right? Go to uh, someone with a marriage and family counseling certificate rather than God first. And again and again and again, whether it's building or guarding our families. You know, guarding today, what do we think? Well, personally, we do home security. Locally, we'll hire police officers. Nationally, we hire, you know, uh, the military. And so we protect ourselves externally, rather than going to God, who says, I am the one who guards. I'm the guardian. The guy can sit up in the tower and be the lookout for the city, but unless I'm guarding the city, it will fall. And so again and again and again, we see ourselves not going to God first, but to people, to projects, to, to experts. And what, when do we go to God? We go to God when the, we start the building project and it's been red-tagged, right? Now we're in crisis mode, so we pray, because we pray in crisis, right? Right? Or we go to God when, you know, we've gone to the marriage and family counselor and he or she's not helping. And so we say, you know what, maybe I should try something else. Let me try praying. Let me try getting some counsel from a brother and sister in Christ or a pastor. And we pay lip service to him. But functionally speaking, God is not the primary builder. He's not the primary guardian. He's not the primary provider. And he's not the primary builder of our families. He's not. And we can even say that within the church. We're talking not about the world, we're talking about those in the church who say, I will seek these other avenues first and I'll go to God as a last resort when all the other experts fail. And he's become that, even in our sleep. I was talking to um, a friend this week who's a professed believer and he's been struggling with sleeping, really struggling with sleeping, and uh, his life, he's very stressed out and he's like, I can't turn my mind off, and so he goes, I went to the doctor and he gave me sleeping meds and that's not working either. Now, there should be another dialogue involved in that dialogue, right? I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. I'm not even saying that maybe medications won't help. But I'm saying there should be another dialogue, and that's where God's involved. And God is the one who provides sleep for those whom he loves, right? That God is the one who should be our primary first contact and the one who moves in our lives. Um, So as a culture, we have tried and I think successfully systematically removed God from all those areas. I saw a commercial on TV last week for the Motorola, Motorola Droid smartphone. I don't have a smartphone. I have a dumb phone. But for the smartphone, for those of you who can use the smartphone, the commercial was amazing. The last line it was fantastic. The narrator, he was narrating, it's this scene of this woman who's in complete control of everything, and she's doing kickboxing. I don't know how that tied in, but, you know, she looks kind of scary to me, so I guess, you know, if you have a phone like this, you can beat people up. Um, But the announcer said this. He said, if you control, actually, he said it like this. He said, if you can control the droid, you control everything. And he had that deep baritone voice, that kind that kind of scared you not to believe what he said, so you go out and buy the phone. Why? So you could control everything, too. Um, The perception being that technology will bring us ultimate control over all things, over the earth, over our relationships, over other people, right? If we have the the right gadget, the right machine, because that's what's going to happen in the age of technology, it's going to continue progressing until we do. We can solve all diseases. We'll stop world hunger. We'll bring injustice to an end. And we'll be able to predict the earthquakes before they come and maybe stop them, right? I mean, that's the promise. It's been the promise for over 100 years now. And there was a time when our culture said, you know what, we're not buying it anymore. But I don't know that's the case anymore. In the last decade, I've seen this resurgence of, hey, maybe we can. Maybe we can cure the diseases that are killing the people that we love. Maybe we actually can predict when the next tsunami is going to come. So it doesn't decimate hundreds of thousands of people. Um, For those of us who know human history, we know that we're not moving that direction technological advances continue and yet we as a people seem to be more fractured. We're more lonely now than we used to be. We're more, we're more isolated. That's somewhat ironic to me. Communication from a technological standpoint has advanced in ways that 20 years ago we couldn't even imagine. I mean, those of you guys walk around with those really big thumbs and you're texting all the time, you're in constant communication. You know, no audible voice. Messages being sent all... And yet, it's amazing how lonely and isolated we are. And not only that, as, as a people... We're less able to communicate. I mean, how is that possible? We have the means by which to communicate in ways we never could think of 20 years ago, and yet we fail in basic communication. Personal lifelong relationships have become secondary to possessions and status for the workaholic. Structures, machines are becoming secondary to the people who live in them, work in them, and actually make them and use them. The workaholic in our culture thinks, if I can gain status and get the possessions that I need and get the money that I need, then I can navigate my way through life. When we know, the believer knows, that the Bible says it's God who navigates. It's God that we must know through Jesus Christ and then live in accordance with him. And he's the one that will navigate a successful life. Not the smartphone. I don't care how smart your phone is. A smartphone for me would be a phone that did not answer the calls I don't want to take. I don't know about you. That would be a smartphone. Say, so, you, know, you know, it would just even ring. It would just ignore it. You don't want to talk to this person. I know that. I'm a smartphone. I'm not going to let it ring. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Unless you workaholic are working by the power of God, according to God, as God desires, all your labor will be in vain. You may not see that now. You may think, it's going well now, right now. Five years, ten years, twenty years from now, you will see the truth of this passage. But there's another extreme, and it's actually picked up in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, In vain you rise early, and you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Now some believers said, this is my life verse, sleep. You know, I, I'm not a workaholic. I don't like to work at all. In fact, I, I never work. I just, I, I just hang out. I just sleep. I'm a sluggard. Have right? you ever heard that term? One of my, my, my instructors used to use that all the time on students that did not do well in his class. He said, you're such a slugger. I mean, just slug, slothful, right? Not laboring. Not, in fact, the opposite of workaholic. The person who makes this life verse, and they, they'll even, we can even twist this into Scripture, Paul dealt with this at the church of Thessalonica, right? Where they say, you know what? God came. Christ completed the work in the cross. There's nothing more for me to do. All I have to do is wait in faith for him to come again. And when he comes again, then everything will be good. So I just got to gotta hang on and wait it out. This was Paul's response to that. Second Thessalonians, he said, we hear. No, Paul's tone, it doesn't come across in the Greek. He's mad. He says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Eat their own food. What were they doing? They were living off the labor of others. They said, you know what? Christ is coming soon. They're using the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to not work. I mean, that's, that's fantastic justification of sin. I don't know how you do it. That's good stuff. They're using Scripture to justify not working. And essentially what Paul saying... Get off your derriere and get back to work, okay? Stop work, stop feeding yourself and your family and your friends off of your friends. You're gifted, go work. Now, in our culture today, we still do an, a lot of enabling. I mean, we enable our, from the government standpoint, you got welfare, social security, unemployment enabled. But I see it in families as well. I see parents who rather than empower their sons and daughters to work, they enable them not to work. And they do it like this. They say, you know what? Um, I know the economy's tough out there. And I, you, know, you go to school for a while. And if you can get a job, great. If not, you know, we'll just do the best we can. And years pass. Instead of the parents saying, like Paul did to the church of Thessalonica, listen, I love you. Put the Xbox controller down. Go take a shower. Get off the couch. Clean your room. And get a job. Get out of my house and get a job. But we don't. Why? Because being a sluggard... Slothfulness is part of the perversion of God's good work for us. And so what's fascinating in our culture, and I can't imagine it's going to be like 20 years from now, we have these, these two groups moving in, in opposite directions, workaholics on one hand and sluggers on the other. Not only are they both disarming to Christ, but they're not going to get along well. I mean, the workaholic and the sluggard are not going to cohabitate well in the culture. And so the 127th Psalm comes along. And the psalm says, listen, there's a whole other way. There's another option. And it's not to make work your life. And it's not to sit on the couch and play video games all day long. There's another option. And it's to work in Christ by his power, according to his gifts, as he wants you to. So work, yes, but not your identity and not your glory. Work, yes, not sitting on the couch at home, ill-shaven. And not working. So the first thing we've got to see is that the the work can get perverted. Work is good. The second thing I want you to see is the first worker. The first worker. You know who that was? You say, Adam. No. Eve, no. Look with me. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builder labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And then in verse 3, he says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children of a reward from him. You know, the the central theme in this is God. And you know what he's doing? He's working. God is the one working. He's the one building. He's the one guarding. He's the one providing the bread. He's the one that's providing the children. He's making the families. He's establishing communities. It's God. He's the primary worker, the primary builder. And the psalmist is saying, listen, he's working right now. And if you try to work independent of him, separate from him, your labor will all be in vain. It doesn't matter what you're trying to create or build or put together or establish or guard and protect. It's all going to go bad if you do it apart from God. Why? Because he is the one that's building. And that means this, if he equips you, which he has, and he gifts you, which he has, and he calls you to work, which he has, and you say, I'm going to do it apart from you. Then you too will fulfill verse one. It will be done in vain and end poorly. In fact, the entire story of Christianity starts out in Genesis one, one, the entire one in the beginning, what in the beginning, God created, you can say God worked. What did he do? He built, what did he build the heavens and the earth? And then it goes into this great descriptive dialogue of the work that he actually did. He stepped down. This is this is Christianity is so distinct from other religions in this particular capacity, in that God, the creator, created. He got down. He didn't send his little you know demagogues to come down and and build people and and you know the oceans and the land and the animals and the birds and, and the stars. He came down. He got his hands dirty. God's a worker. And he put his hands in it and he made things. And he made, I think mean, he made things that we look at and we go, oh, we can't believe that he made it, but he made them. He did. Not someone else, not an angel, not a demigod. God made it. So God is a worker. You know what that means? That means he's the expert. Right? So when the economy's bad and we're struggling with jobs and we run to, you know, the job council, or we run to the sociologist, we run and we say, President Obama, what does your National Economic Council have to say? We're bypassing the primary worker, and that's God. And we're also bypassing the primary book on work, and that's the Bible. You ever been, any of you worked for a large corporation, In the first couple days they give you that employee handbook, <laughs> you're like, does anybody read this? And they go, no. no. But they give it to you anyway, right? It's liability purposes. Some of you actually read through it, talk to you about explaining to you the work you're supposed to do, the expectations, what you can and cannot say on the job site, right? The Bible, amongst other things, is an employee handbook describing to us work describing to us how we're supposed to work in fact in john chapter five jesus christ reveals something fantastic about work i talked about it briefly this morning in the morning bible study he comes upon a man who for 38 years could not walk and he was lying next to the pool near the sheep gate which The understanding was when the water would be stirred, it was the Holy Spirit. And if you could get into the water while the water was moving, you'd be healed. And he's lying there day after day, week after week, year after year. And as soon as the water starts to stir, other people jump in. And he goes, I can never get in in time. I always miss it. I miss the healing. And so Jesus comes up to him. And he saw him lying there. And he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. And Jesus said to him, get up. I love this. Get off the couch. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The Bible tells us the day on which this took place was a Sabbath day. That means no work, right? It was supposed to be only rest. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, not, how did you get healed? They say to him, it's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying your mat. That's a brilliant response, isn't it? Hey, aren't you the guy who's been lame for 38 years and can't walk? How'd that happen? No, hey, put your mat down. The man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I could see him saying, that guy fixed me. I'm listening to him. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, listen to what he says to the Jews. My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. God is the primary worker. He was working then. He's working now to redeem all mankind and restore a fallen world, a fallen universe. God is working. I know you hear that. You say, well, yeah, God's working in my life. Of course he is. What do you think? He's He's always working. He worked then. He works today. He'll work in the future. He's a worker. He's not a sluggard. What's astonishing, though, is in verse 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So not only is God the primary worker and therefore we should be working with him and in him. But Jesus said, listen, I don't do any work apart from that which my father is already doing and wants me to do. I mean, this is... So I told you earlier, no mind popping. This is mind popping to me. Because Christ is saying... My Father is always working, and I will only do what my Father is doing. Do you see how radical that is and how different that is than Christians today saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Jesus is saying, My Father is working, and I'm going to work as He already is. It's not a question of what, it's where. So God says, I'm going to work, and I'm working right now to banish sin and Satan and the dominions and, and death and hell. And I'm going to judge, man. I'm going to bring you home, those who know me. But Christ, when he says, I do nothing by myself, what, he, what Christ was saying was this. Not even the second person of the holy triune God could build a church apart from the Father. He couldn't feed himself or his disciples or the 4,000 or 5,000 apart from God. He couldn't guard and protect his disciples from the evil one apart from the Father. All of the work that he did, that he accomplished, God the Father was already doing, and Christ said, I'm going to step into that and do it as well. All the work. And the model here is fantastic, because what he's saying is, the Son's saying, I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing separate from the Father. All the work that I do, the Father's already doing, and I'm going to work in Him and with Him. And the model is this for us. Jesus Christ lived a life of work the Father loved because of Jesus' love for the Father. In other words, he nurtured this intimate, deep, personal, daily, dynamic relationship with God the Father. And as a result of that, the work that he did was what the Father was doing. The work that he did, the Father wanted him to do. Not one thing that Jesus did in his entire life was contrary to what the Father said, this is what I want you to do. And contrary to what the Father was already doing in mankind, Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? (laughs) That your whole life that you've lived in accordance with what God wants you to do and what God is already doing. Do you know how that will change your prayer? Some of you said, you know, oh, Lord, what would you have me do, Lord? Show me, Lord. That's the wrong prayer for the believer in Christ. The believer in Christ is, Lord, where are you working right now? Where are you working in my life? Where are you working in my neighbor's life? Where are you working in my family's life? Where are you working in my church's life? Where are you working? Because I want to jump into your work. I've tried doing it on my own and it always fails every single time. I, I may go for a week or two or maybe even a couple of years if I have a good run. But it always fails. I want to engage in the work that you're already doing. I want to take the gifts and the talents that you've given me and specifically desire for me to use to do your work, not my work. That's so contrary to the Christian thought process today. I talk to believers and they say, you know what? I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. And God wants me to do this. Well, how do you know? Is he already working there? No, but he wants me to go. God must precede us. God must be working first. And the key for us is nurturing that relationship as well. You say, do you want to work well? Do you want to work where God is working? Then you start with the dynamic of knowing him through Jesus Christ and loving him and experiencing his love for you. And then you'll work properly. Paul drives this point home in 1 Corinthians. Listen. Paul says, there are different different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. God's always working. So the sluggard misses the blessing of working with God. The work of holic misses the blessing the sluggard misses it because he's just going to be lazy, right? The workaholic misses it because the workaholic is in front of God. He's outside of God's work. He's doing the work for all the wrong reasons, to bring himself glory and honor rather than to bring God glory and honor. The sluggard misses the ability to sleep. I cannot, It's amazing to me the number of people in our culture who struggle sleeping. I mean, of all times in human history, we have, we have houses that are air-conditioned and have heat, We have beds that have, you know, individual pocketed springs, a lot of you, you know, so you can actually get into bed. If you're married and, you know, the bed won't go like this, you can get into bed so your wife won't bounce up and down when you get up. We have blankets and pillows. We of all people should be sleeping better than anybody in human history. And yet people cannot sleep. Why? They're toiling. They're working themselves to the bone. They work too long. They start too early. They go too late. And they can't sleep. Or the sluggard as well. Why can't the sluggard sleep? Because they're not tired. Why? They sleep all day. So why sleep at night? Perversions on both sides. So how do, we, how do we make sure that we don't fall into one of those two categories? The workaholic or the sluggard. How do we make sure, how do we as believers see God's work clearly and step into it rather than trying to do our own independent of him? The last point. We must labor in love. When you first heard this psalm, or when you read it for yourself, it sounds almost like the the psalm writer, if it was Solomon, had a break in thought, right? He's talking about building, he's talking about guarding, and he's talking about, you know, earning your daily bread and sleep, and then then he's talking about kids. And it's just you know, verses one and two, you got work and then children, family. And it almost seems like they're disconnected, but they're not. And the commentators argue they said one juxtaposes the other. In the first couple of verses, you have someone trying to build and guard and work independent of God, and it fails. And in the second, verses three through five, you have God who must bring life and children, and those of us who participate, what? There's great success. The last line of thy lover Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of what? Children. They will not be put to shame when they, con- when they contend with their enemies in the gate. There will be great success in this work. Why? Because God is the one who does the work. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior and sons born in one's youth. The contrast could not be greater. In the first two verses, whether you're building or guarding or trying to earn money and, and, and feed yourself or sleep, All of it apart from God is done in vain. And then we get to verses 3 through 5. And who do we know is the primary worker? We know that God is the one who gives the children. When it says a, a heritage, that's an inheritance. Children are a reward. Now, I don't have to belabor this point. But most people in our culture do not consider it hard work to procreate. I mean, that's not... People say, yo, we're trying to have children. It's a terrible thing. I mean, we're really struggling with it. I mean, some people do in terms of actual, the pregnancy and conception. But the process, most people don't consider laborious at all. In fact, so much so that we engage in that process even when we're not married and we don't want to have kids. But God says, this is a form of labor. It is. Not the labor at the end, but labor at the beginning. An expression of love. And what I love is that this passage says, look, the greatest fruit... Coming from your greatest labor is not only laborious, no pun intended, but I'm the one who's bringing it all about. It's me because I'm the one providing the children. In Genesis chapter 2, God calls a man and a woman to be separated from their parents, to become one flesh. And to what? Be fruitful and multiply. And from a husband and wife's expression of sexual love and intimacy one to another, what happens? We have life. We have children. We have the greatest product of the greatest work to mankind. Now, I know some of you say, you know what? I went to, I visited Chicago and I went to the Sears Tower. That to me is more magnificent than a child. Well, you haven't had any kids yet. I guarantee it. As soon as you have a child, the Sears Tower is cool. You know, El Capitan, Yosemite, it's cool. That's great stuff. It's, a, it's marvelous. And it's worth going, it's amazing seeing the uh, ingenuity of man's mind. It is. It's amazing seeing a sunset. But the creation, when God brings forth life, I'll never forget standing and seeing Kirk, my oldest son, when he came out, I used to be going, it's a baby. And they keep thinking, the nurse was thinking, what would you think it was going to be? I mean, really? A dog? No, of course it's a baby. And you're like, it's a Baby, and you're holding, going, unbelievable. I mean, even they're covered with vernix, and they're all wrinkly, and their heads are shaped like a cone, and they're going like, oh, oh. you know, they got that headache going as they should. But it's a, it's a miracle, and you don't leave there going, you don't leave there like the culture saying, oh, I made that. Really? I mean, with the culture things that, right? That we make children. Well, people say, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have children. We're going to control that. Sure, you are. Go give that a shot. See how that works out for you. God brings the child through your laborious expression of love for one another. And he does this and it's what's so amazing to me. The first 7 days accounted in scripture, this is God's work week, right? You read through it. What's God doing? He's the he's working. In fact, he's the only one working because there's no one else. He's working, right? And what does he do on the last day of his work week? What does he do? What does he create? No, I'm sorry, the last day of the work week, which would be day six, he writes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us, God's talking to himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. God created us, you in his image. Why? As an expression of his love. Was he working? Yes. But what was his motivation? Love. To share that love. Glory. To share the glory. You know what that means? That the pinnacle of God's work on the last day of creation... Was us. And it was done as an expression of his own love. For the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for mankind as well. This is the pinnacle. The greatest labor of love. And when we engage in sexual intimacy, husband and wife. And the fruit of that is people. We too are engaging in the greatest work as well. Because God did the same. Creating us in his image, why? To be relational beings, because he is. To be fruit-bearing beings, because he is. To be workers, because he is. And you know what that means? If his work is a product of the expression of his love, that means our work, right motivation, right purpose, right work, should be an expression of our love as well. How's that going to fly tomorrow morning? I mean, honestly... I don't know what time you get up, your alarm clock goes off, and you jump in the shower, and you're thinking, I'm going to work as an expression of my love. No, that's not going to work, is it? I mean, it doesn't. So try it. If you try say, I'm going to work now as an expression of my love, it'll last a day, maybe two, and it will fail. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, something happened. <laughs> God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. You know what that means? Whether you're a farmer or not, there's a toilsome aspect to work. Right? There's a quality to it that's burdensome. I don't know of anybody who works Monday through Friday, Saturday sometimes, day in and day out. And they'll like, go, you know what? It's always, I'm always joyful. Never. There's always an aspect of it's toilsome. Why? Because of the curse. Why? Because we rebelled against God. But just because there are qualities of work being toilsome doesn't mean it has to always be that way. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to what? To make all things new, including work. Yes, believe it or not, whatever your job is, no matter how much you hate it, God can make it new. And it may be the same job with the same boss with the same hours that you cannot stand, but he can change you and how you approach it. He can make it new. How do we do that? I mean, that's that's really going to be the key. I'm just going to give you two. There are several, but two, and then we'll close. One, you've got to see the motivation of Christ's work. I and mean, you got to see it. Not just know it, but see it. And then you have to have a change of orbit. That your work has to be about others rather than just about you. Right? How many in our culture, how many of us work today to earn the money, to buy the food, to go on vacation, to pay for college, to retire, and to golf? Instead of about others. Maybe about the colleagues that you don't like, maybe about the boss that you can't stand, maybe about the neighbor next to you who needs help financially. Our Lord's walk, we must see first. It was not glamorous. Our Lord did not work in a a high rise. He didn't work on Wall Street. He worked on the streets and in the homes of, of some of the poorest, weakest, most wretched people to ever walk the face of the earth. His colleagues were not PhDs from Ivy League schools. His colleagues were fishermen and blue-collar workers. That's who he worked with. Those were his fellow co-workers. His clients were not not the rich and famous. They were not people from uh, Fortune 500 companies. His clients were the sick and the lame, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the least and the last, those cast out of society, those on the margins. That's who he worked with. His purpose was not to make a lot of money. It wasn't to become president and CEO of a major company. It wasn't to retire early and work on his handicap. His purpose for working was to serve God and serve mankind. His purpose and motivation was out of his love for God the Father and out of his love for us. To redeem us. To bring us back. So that we wouldn't spend all of our lives and all of eternity toiling again and again and again. Now, some of you might think, well, wait a minute. If he did only what the Father asked him to do, and he did it because the Father himself was working and he was gifted to do that... Then he must not have toiled, right? He must not have toiled. Right? He he did everything out of love, love for God, love for man. There must have been no toiling in his life. You've never read Scripture, because the Scripture said that Jesus Christ toiled. In fact, we can go one step further. He toiled infinitely more than we ever can or will toil. You say, "Oh, you don't know my life. You don't know what it's been like this past week or this past month or this past year or these past ten years. You don't know my life." I don't. Not all of your lives. But I do know this, Jesus Christ lived a toilsome life. In fact, we can say that Jesus Christ in his last couple days on earth experienced toiling unlike we could possibly imagine. How so? On his last day, we know on his last day, as he goes to pray with his friends, someone comes and betrays him. Someone that he loves, someone for three and a half years he walked with, he ate with, he ministered to, he ministered with. He was betrayed. We know that he was arrested unjustly in the middle of the night. We know that he was taken before his own people, the Sanhedrin, people that these were religious leaders, right? And he was falsely tried and then falsely accused. And he was sent back and forth from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate and back to the people. And he was beaten amidst all of that brutally to one lashing of his own death. And that's not bad enough. He's then paraded through town on his way out of the city so he's paraded through town he's humiliated he's beaten he's cast out of the city all of his friends leave him everybody rejects him and then he's nailed to a cross and the one time you think the father would come in and rescue him and save him the father turns away too and then he goes to hell and then he experiences hell on your behalf that's a bad day that's a really bad day that's toiling that's toiling That's toiling beyond, I mean, I don't know about you, I've never had a day that comes even remotely close to that. Jesus Christ knew toiling. He toiled in blood, he toiled in pain, he toiled in sweat, and he toiled in hell. Why? So that our toiling would one day end. We talk about getting a taste of eternity in the blessings of Christ, but you know, we get a taste of hell as well. You know, when you think about toiling, there's a side to it. You think, I can't do this anymore. Right? I, I, can't, I cannot do this job anymore. I cannot do this parenting anymore. I cannot do this friendship. It's too toilsome. It's killing me. That's a very nice way a foreshadowing... Of toiling for all eternity. The Bible talks about it like this. There'll be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I hate that phrase. Gnashing of teeth. First time I read it, not as a believer, I thought, that is a wicked phrase. Because when you get this, when you're writhing, you're gnashing your teeth. Eternal toiling. Christ toiled to take that away. So that we wouldn't have to toil eternally. That's hard to say. Jesus Christ, out of his radical love for you, willingly embraced a life of hardship, persecution, suffering, and death. So that in the midst of your hardship now, you could have joy. And then eternally have joy forever and no hardship. In the midst of your persecution now, you could have peace. And forever in him, no more persecution and peace, shalom forever. So that in the midst of your suffering now, right now, there be comfort Knowing in eternity there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, but only comfort. So in the midst of death, in the face of death right now, for you or someone you love, you know that you cannot, it will not have victory in you, you have life now in him. And then life in him forever and ever. Jesus Christ, because he did only what the Father was doing and wanted him to do, everything he did bore good fruit. Do you know that? not a single thing that Christ did was done in vain. And that means that when Christ Christ was was a contractor and he built a house, and you're the house, right? The Bible says that we are each members of this house. And it means because he didn't toil in vain that his building project was never going to be red-tagged. It was going to be successful. That the very gates of hell could not prevail against his building project. Why? Because he labored out of love for God and for you, and he did it according to the will of the Father. Not only that... When when he he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended. And then who did he send? He sent the Holy Spirit to do what? To lead us, to give us wisdom, and to guard us. And so the Holy Spirit says, I I guarantee you and Christ will be together forever. Jesus Christ labored with his body and his blood to give us eternal food. And he says, if you eat my body and you drink my blood, if you consume me I will consume you and you'll never be thirsty again. You'll never be without food again. You won't have to rise so early and work so late and forsake me on Sundays. I will provide food for you because I will be the very bread of life. I will be your living water. Jesus Christ is making a family and you're in it. You are the, you're the arrows in his quiver. You're the inheritance. The Bible actually says that the church is an inheritance given by God the Father to Jesus Christ. You, an inheritance, a holy people. And all of his work was done out of his radical love for God the Father and his radical love for you, to redeem you, so that we would not toil for eternity, so that we would not have bad days forever and ever and ever. You know, I don't think there's any greater parable in all of sacred scripture that gives us this understanding of eternal toiling than that of Lazarus and the rich man. Right? I mean we have that. Christ, the, 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 the rich man goes to, to hell. He's in Hades, and, and Lazarus is brought up into Abraham's bosom, and he cries out, right? He says, just just have Lazarus dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I can't stand the toiling. And God says, Abraham says, No, can't. Can't. Forever and ever toiling. Christ says, I've come to take that away. Only when you see the degree of the sacrifice and the radical love that Christ poured out on you through the cross, will you be able to go to work tomorrow morning and work as an expression of love? Go to work with eyes for your employer and for the employees and for your job to do all things to the glory of God and actually engage in work for reasons other than a paycheck and food and a vacation. If that's why you go to work, if that's why you serve, if that's why you use your gifts and talents, then I can tell you your whole life will be toilsome. It will be. I don't care how much money you make or whatever, you know, the degrees you get. And you're going to just keep building, building, possessing, possessing. And you'll always be toiling. Always toiling. Undergirded in your work should be that deep sense of joy, peace, and satisfaction you have in Christ because of his work that he accomplished for you. The second thing I want you to see is that in Christ, your orbit will change. And what I mean by that is you will work not for yourself, but for others. You'll work to bring glory to another that is God, and you'll work to serve others. You say, I don't work in the service industry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what job you do. It doesn't matter who you work with, the people you're around. You have an opportunity every single day to go in the love of God and the love of other people and minister. Do you know that? Every single day, you have that opportunity to go and share Christ. And The key is this, Jesus worked and he toiled out of his love for the Father and for you. And he says, go and work, and you will toil, yes, but go and work out of your love for me, first and greatest commandment, and out of your love for one another, second commandment, right? Let it be something that overflows in you, and that's why the gospel is so central to it. If you try to do this on your own, you will only toil, But if you see Christ and experience Christ and know Christ, then his love for you will overflow and that will move into others' lives. And that means that people and relationships will become paramount to structure and technology. That means, parents, when you work, you'll be working not to to get the raise and the promotion and take your kids. You'll be working to support your family, to support your church, to bless others. Moms, when you stay home toiling all day, and I know that's a toilsome job, it won't be, you know, these the shackles that have been placed upon you, but you're there to raise and love your sons and daughters to know Christ. Out of your love for them. Young married couples, I don't have a kids, you work to, to build a foundation for your family, right? As you're saving now, and you're working now to build a structure for your home, for your future children that God will bless you with as a reward, as an inheritance. Members of a church. You have gifts and talents. You say, I don't want to help. I don't want to serve. Why? It's a love issue. It's a desire issue. If you desire it, you will. Why? For your brothers and sisters to edify the body, to build us up together. Out of your love for one another. It means you can go to the stinkiest job with the stinkiest boss and the stinkiest employees. That you don't want to work with at all. I mean, you just don't like your job. But in the gospel of grace and the love of Christ, you can go and you can maybe tomorrow morning, for the first time, see the people you work with, not as clogs in the machine that are toiling also. And you're just, this is the person that I toil with every single day. But as people that were created by God in his image. People with real hurts, with real pains, with real struggles, with real joys, with real families and real children that maybe don't know the real living God in Jesus Christ. Real people that you can go to and have lunch with. You say, Oh, you want me to hand out tracts? No. But have a cup of coffee with them. Ask them how their life is. How are things at home? How are your kids? Do you have kids? They're people. Real people, not just colleagues. Your boss is a real person, not just someone you dislike. Real people with real struggles. The gospel of grace fills you up and then it spills out on them. How much time do you spend listening to other people, friends, family, coworkers? I had uh, a meeting the other night with a group of men. And I left, and I I was tired. I was tired. I wanted to go home. I hadn't seen my kids the majority of the day. I wanted to see them before they went to bed. And as we were walking out of the restaurant, this guy stopped, and he started talking to me. And I could tell he just wanted to talk. And so I I said, how are things at home? He's like, oh. And he went on for about 45 minutes. 45 minutes. We're standing in the parking lot. It's 1130 at night, and I'm exhausted. And he talked. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, I was thinking... Man, just stop talking. Right? And part of me is like, just stop, please. So, you need to keep walking in your car like this? You're know, thinking, I'm just going to get in and <laughs> I drive away. But I had a greater desire, and that was Christ's desire for me to listen long. And I did, and I asked him questions. And why are you him questions? You want to leave. Because he really needed to talk. He was struggling. He, was, he has a daughter at Chico, and she's struggling, and his wife is struggling with his time at work. He works the graveyard shift, and it's hard. It's just hard. But he's a real person with real struggles. And there's real hope to offer in the love of God. And so I listen. If you struggle with this whole idea of working out of love, then you're not a parent. And if you're a parent you struggle with it, then you're missing Christ. Because there's no greater fundamental example, and it's one of the reasons that God gives us verses 3, 4, and 5 in this passage. God brings children into our lives. But they're a ton of work. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that? Look, you guys say I mean, You don't have kids yet. How do you know? You'll know. It's a ton of work. He said, oh, I know. I, I made my parents work so hard. Okay, you know it from the other end. Maybe you did. But it is an absolute labor of love. What parent would say, you know what? I'm done. What, who, nobody. Not even pagans do that. They know it's a labor of love. You work, you work, you work, you work. And if someone said stop, he said, never would I stop. It's my son. It's my daughter. I love them. They drive me crazy, but I love them. And you keep working, you keep serving. That's the heart of it. That's how we're supposed to do everything. Whether it's building or guarding or going to work 50 hours a week doing the same thing. With that love that compels us to see Christ and love others. Just as we do with our kids. You wouldn't give up, you wouldn't stop it. To love for the sake of Christ. Those who were traveling to Jerusalem and got there, I imagine there had been, some traveled great, there had been a great temptation to go, We made it before you guys did. (laughs) What what took you so long? What kind of mileage did your camel get? You know, we only had to stop three times. Did you see all the people we brought with us? This is the whole community. We're here. You know what? We were attacked by, by bandits. You know, there was a huge storm to get, and there would be this temptation to gather, right? I mean, we're following people, and everybody's standing in the square, right? Maybe by the sheep's gate. And they're all talking, say, about their great adventures and how they got there. And then someone would stop and start singing this psalm. And they would say, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And they'd start singing. You know what happened? All the dialogue would change. There'd be crystal clarity in that moment. Instead of bringing glory to themselves about their great adventures, they'd stop and bring glory to God. Instead of focusing on how strong they are and how courageous they are and how they were able to get there before everybody else, they would focus on God's getting them there. His building, his guarding, his providing. This 127th Psalm insists... That all of our work and all of our efforts and all of our glory that we try to get must be submitted to and come under the work that God is doing right now. And then he says, step into his work. Stop thinking, God, what do you want me to do? And start saying, what are you doing? And then step into it. Just step into it. Because he's working everywhere. He's working at your work, believe it or not. He's working in your home. He's working in your community. He's working in this church. Stop trying to figure out this ground puzzle of what he wants you to do. See the work he's doing and step into it. Just step into it. Start loving and start serving as Christ calls you to. Use your gifts and talents. It's an absolute blessing. Don't be a workaholic. And don't sit on the couch playing video games. Work in the abounding love of the gospel of grace. It's much better. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the temptation to go to either extreme. We see, Lord, as a culture that we... We, we have the tendency to work too much in vain glory. We have the tendency to be sluggards, Lord, and, and want to sleep more than actually produce. I pray, Father, that we would find the balance in the gospel of grace, that we would see that your son, Jesus Christ, died. He lived, he worked, and he died to set us free from this perpetual state of toiling, both on this side and in eternity. Father, it is burdensome to try to live and work and strive apart from you. But in you, there can be great peace and great joy and great satisfaction in the midst of the toiling. And then the hope and the promise that we have that one day the toiling will end. The pain will end. The suffering will end. The frustration will end. And we will come into your presence because of the work of your son and we will know what it means to have love and joy in the presence of God. I pray that that hope resonates deep in each of us, Father. And this morning, we, we leave here today, we read and sing the 127th Psalm, pray through it tonight, so that we, tomorrow morning, can go to work with a different perspective, a radically different perspective, given to us by you, steeped in the love of your Son. Grant us that this, this, this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.